pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, the book of Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you, and if you're new to the Bible, you will find Colossians chapter 1 on page 983 on the right-hand column. Verse numbers are the big, uh, the chapter numbers are the big numbers, the verse numbers are the small numbers, so look for the small number 24. We're going to begin reading at verse 24, down to the end of chapter 1. I'm going to read the passage, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work here. Cornerstone, we work through books of the Bible a little bit at a time, and today we are in Colossians 1, verse 24 to 29. I'll read, we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. It should be around 45 minutes or so. Colossians 1, this is the word of the Lord. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Lord, would you come again? as you already have this morning, and do a miracle. Give us eyes to see the beauties of Jesus here in this text. Lord, would you spare your people? As I endeavor by your spirit to serve them well, keep me from taking anything from them, but only serving to help them to see Jesus. Make me faithful to your word so that your people hear it clearly. And God would make much of his son this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. If you are a fan of intellectually stimulating films, as I am, you'll no doubt be familiar with the highly complex movie character known as Scrat. An acorn-obsessed, saber-toothed squirrel featured in the Ice Age films. If you're not into sophisticated films, uh, such as Ice Age, uh, let me introduce you to Scrat. Scrat has a simple vision. He loves acorns more than anything. 
But it's the ice age, and so acorns are rather difficult to come by. And so when Scratch finds an acorn, he tirelessly and relentlessly endeavors literally the most trying of circumstances to hold on to that one elusive acorn. But acorns are just always right outside of Scratch's reach. In the second film in the franchise, Scratch has a near-death experience. He's transported into what can only be described as acorn heaven. It's Scrat's vision of the good life. Acorns floating on clouds, easily plucked by anyone who passes by. And Snatch has his arms full of acorns when he comes across the acorn of all acorns, the God acorn, an acorn literally ten times his size. But this is a near-death experience, and Scrat is pulled from acorn heaven and rejoined to his body back on the frozen earth, chasing that one elusive acorn stuck in the ice. We all share something in common with Scrat. All of us are motivated by our vision of the good life. Scrat's vision of the good life was acorn heaven. It was what he loved most, and we're all the same. We are motivated by our vision of the good life, by what we love most. Now, you may not have given much conscious thought to this, but you're thinking about that all the time. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. It's what puts your feet on the floor every morning. It's what you love and desire most that is the driving center of what you do every day. It's what you're living for. Outside of Christ, culture informs our vision of the good life. We live for a 21st century Americanized version of the acorn heaven. And that could be anything. It could be a successful business. It could be a home on the ocean shore. It could be a large, loving family. It could be a conservative in the White House. It could be travel, seeing the world, seeing the country. It could be alleviating poverty in the developing world. It could be a chiseled frame, competing in the WWE. Who knows what your vision of the good life is? And none of those are wrong, except maybe the WWE. It's just that all of them fall short of biblical priorities. A wrong vision of the good life will lead us to build our lives on the wrong foundation. It leads to a wasted life. If we do not have a vision of the good life, Informed by Scripture, we will come to the end of our days and face the tragic reality that we have wasted our lives. That God has made us, that God has saved us for something more than the American dream. And my prayer is that we work through this passage, the Spirit of the Lord would move upon all of our hearts to cause our vision of the good life to be more informed by biblical priorities than by those in our culture. And I pray the Lord would spare us a wasted life.
In this section of Paul's letter to the Colossians, we see an element of Paul's vision of the good life. This is what sets the Apostle Paul's feet on the floor in the morning. This is what he lived for. Or in his own words, it's what he toiled and struggled after. The apostle worked hard and endured suffering to proclaim Christ in order to grow God's church in spiritual maturity. Four points from this passage this morning. And you're welcome to follow along on the backside of your worship guide as we go along. Here's the big idea. Work hard and suffer well to proclaim Christ. Work hard and suffer well to proclaim Christ. The perspective that I will take in interpreting this particular passage of Colossians is, and you you take this and you balance it against the witness of Scripture, but this is the perspective that I'll take. That what the Apostle Paul is describing here about his own life applies to all of us. The word minister that you see in verse 25 applies to every follower of Jesus. It just, that word minister just means servant. Paul was a servant of Jesus Christ. Pastor Brent and I are servants of Jesus Christ. You are servants of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you are a servant of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we say it all the time around here. Your faith is personal, but it is not private. That your spiritual well-being is our business. And our spiritual well-being is your business. Otherwise, what did the Apostle Paul mean in 1 Corinthians 12, 26 when he wrote, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is Christian community. So work hard. Suffer well to proclaim Christ as the church is built up. Four points. First point. God's servants suffer for others' good. We can draw this out of verse 24. Let's read it again. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now this is not the only place in Holy Scripture that we read that Christians rejoice in suffering. After all, it's true that we serve a murdered Savior, suffering, who suffered for the good of others. Suffering and difficulty and mistreatment and being misunderstood and being mislabeled and being maligned, it's just, it's built into our DNA as Christians. It's not weird that a Christian would endure suffering. It's weird that a Christian would avoid suffering. So Paul rejoices in his sufferings for the Colossian church. He considers that his suffering, the suffering that accompanies his ministry, is for their sake. You notice that. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He says it twice. My sufferings for your sake. My sufferings for the behalf of the body of Christ. Dear Christian brother and sister, as you set your righteous, God-honoring sights on discipling ministry, that is, the ministry of helping people follow Jesus, there will be sufferings in store for you. And those sufferings, they matter greatly. According to Paul, there are reasons to rejoice. Which is strange, right? 
Who rejoices when they suffer? What did the Apostle Paul know about Christian suffering that we don't? Well, I, I think the answer is bound up in that rather confusing phrase that comes next. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, I should state, this is one of the more difficult Pauline phrases. At first, it sounds like Paul is saying that Jesus left some things undone at the cross. Like maybe he he died too early. He didn't suffer enough. And so Paul has to come along and fill up what he didn't fill. It's like Paul has to come along and finish the job for Jesus. That's what it sounds like. But obviously, that cannot be what Paul means. Jesus' cross work is not unfinished. A couple of weeks ago, in verse 20, we saw that Jesus has reconciled all things to God by his body of flesh on the cross. After all, it's true, isn't it, that when Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say? The last thing he said, it is finished. It's done. There's nothing more that needs to be done. For his people... Their past, present, and future sins have been atoned for. It is finished. So what does Paul mean? That he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, from the context, it seems that he's referring to the difficulty, the afflicting work of bringing the good news to the Colossians. It seems that this is about the delivery of the message of the gospel. He's working to bring the gospel to bear in the lives of others. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he left his people with a mission to carry out in the earth, to go tell others. And that mission of telling others about Jesus comes with affliction. And that's what's left to be done, to be filled up. Think about it like this. Imagine a wealthy relative left you a fortune in her will. And she dies, very sad. And all of that money is still in her name. Even though, according to the will, it belongs to you, it's still in her name. You can't do anything with that money until there's an exchange. Until someone has to come along and do the work of bringing what is hers and crediting it to you. Someone has to settle the matter with the estate, and make the exchange. That seems to be what Paul is referring to here. He's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the church, namely the delivery of the gospel and the application of the gospel to the lives of those who've never heard. Someone needs to go and tell them this gospel, which is sufficient to save sinners of all shapes and sizes and change lives. The only thing lacking is someone to tell them. Remember back in our series in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote to the church saying that God comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with we, which we have received ourselves. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when we patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer? How long before we let go of this rank individualism 
and actually believe that our sin, our life in Christ, our salvation, our comfort isn't just about us. Paul rejoices in his suffering for their sake. Though ministry was hard and disappointing, though he's writing to them this letter out of a prison cell, the apostles rejoicing in his suffering. It's for their sake. It's to get the gospel to them. God's servants rejoice in suffering for others' good. Because God's servants understand that their suffering It's never really just about them. It's to receive comfort and to share that comfort with others. Jesus Christ laid down His life, bearing the wrath of God against sinners, and was raised to life for their justification. His suffering, our good. Now, as Christians, we don't bear the wrath of God for the sake of others like Jesus did. But like Jesus did, we lay down our lives to bring the gospel to others. Which, of course, always involves affliction, disappointment, hardship, suffering. But this is the call of God on all of us. Every follower of Jesus is called to help others follow Jesus. And so suffer well to that end. Well, wouldn't it be easier to just get baptized, join the church, and just mind your own business. Why bother with the hard and frustrating work of caring about others? Paul's answer is in the next few verses because he has a commission from God. That's the second point. God's servants are commissioned to share Christ with outsiders. This is verses 25 to 27, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me, again, for you, to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is how Paul views his life. He is a minister. Remember, the word means servant, a minister according to a stewardship given to him from God. The commission that God has given him is to make the word of God fully known. Paul understands the Christian life is a stewardship. He has a job. The Lord Jesus had come to Paul when he was an enemy of God and saved him and gave him a purpose. Told him, go to the Gentiles and tell them, those who are trapped in darkness, bring them into the light. Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And the same can be said for all of us. That when God saved you, if you are a Christian, you are an enemy of God. Trying to live your life by your own purposes, but God saved you and gave you His own purpose. So this message today, last week's message, last week, the message that will come next week, it's never meant to stay with us. As the Word of God is proclaimed, it's meant to go through us to others. Your devotional time is for you, but it's not only for you. You are a conduit of God's grace that He means to give to others. We exist to make the Word of God fully known. All of us.
Now, some of us, it happens because we teach Bible classes. Some of us because we lead Living Stones groups. Some of us because we interact with one-on-one conversations with others. Some of us preach sermons. Some of us sing the Bible in songs. All of us are teaching, making the Word of God fully known. Each one of us has that responsibility to sit down with another person and to engage in God's Word with that person. Like ripples in a pond, when God's Word is proclaimed on Sunday morning, the truth of God reverberates throughout the church all week long. So a friend asked another friend to go out to lunch. What did you think of the passage on Sunday morning? Friend, families talk about it in the car on the drive home. The Word rippling through the people. The Spirit working through the people through His Word. Co-workers taking one another out to lunch and sharing the gospel, discussing theology. Friends taking a long drive in a car and talking about the Trinity. Friends exhorting friends to repent of their sin. One man rebuking another man for harshness with his wife. College-age women encouraging high schoolers in the Lord. Bottom line is, when the Lord shows you something of himself in Scripture, rejoice in it and then share it with someone else. It's theology done in community. Paul saw his life as a stewardship from God. His mission was to reveal the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to outsiders, that is, Gentiles like us. He wanted to reveal the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what mystery is that? Well, he explains it, verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Union with Christ is one of the central themes in the book of Colossians. Really, it's one of the central themes in Paul. I told you before, but if you, if you just lock into your head that phrase, in Christ, and you read through the New Testament, you'll start seeing it everywhere. Christian brother and sister, ponder this. The, under, the uncreated king of heaven dwells in you. Your God has united you to him and him to you by faith. The the good news of Christianity is that Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserved. And that Jesus gave the righteousness that he earned to us. In reality, God treated his son in the way I deserved to be treated in order that the way he deserved to be treated, I would be treated. It's astonishing this. This is the riches of the glory of the gospel. That at this moment, dear Christian, as you are trusting in the Lord, your God is treating you the way Jesus deserves to be treated. Knowing full well, you do not deserve that kind of treatment. But you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. This is the best news ever. And this is why Christians are so crazy about telling anyone about it. But if you're you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I just want you to know... 
church is the best place to be on a Sunday morning. And it would seem to me that the Lord wanted you to know this very thing. Because God loves you, He wanted you to know the truth about your life. There's only one hope for you in this life and in the next. And that's Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, you are under the judgment of God for your sins. And it is inescapable. Don't leave here today still under God's judgment for your sins. Turn from sin. Trust in Jesus Christ, friend. And be saved. Be forgiven. And have peace with God. And then tell someone about it. If you're new, this is your first time here, please tell someone. Someone who looks like a regular around here, these are my friends. I know that they'd be happy to introduce you to this new life in Christ. These are the riches of the glory of God that we get to share with others. We're just over the moon about this, and so we tell everyone. We tell those who've never heard it, and we tell those who've already heard it. The message of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus, is not just something that gets us saved. It's something that grows us, and it's something that will get us home. You see this in what Paul says next. This is my third point. God's servants proclaim Christ to grow Christians. Verse 28. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice how Paul outlines his ministry of the word in four verbs. Proclaim, warn, teach, and present. Now, who do you suppose Paul is referring to? Who's he doing this ministry of the word to? It could be non-Christians probably is non-Christians. But it sure seems like from the context, he's referring to those in the church. Him we proclaim. Dear Christians, we're proclaiming him to you, Colossians. You know, Paul even told one church, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So when the apostle needed to address problems going on in a church... You know how he did that? He preached the gospel. Because Paul understood that whatever the problem, the gospel is the solution. When Christians sin, it is because in some way they have forgotten something true about who God is and what God has done. And so it's also true The gospel is the solution to how we overcome sin. So the gospel is is, is what God has done to save us from sin. And it's true that the gospel is the thing that God gives us to help us overcome temptation to sin. What What motivates a life of holiness that honors the Lord? Is it not this? Is it not remembering that the all-seeing eyes of God looked upon my filthy life stained by the refuse of my own sin and took notice of me? More than that, took pity on me? 
more than that, that he loved me such that he would give his only son to die for me? That he would dirty his own clean hands to make me clean? That he would give me a place at his table? That he would call me his son? And so why would I want to take this life cleansed by Jesus' own blood back into the same filth I was pulled out of? Unless I've forgotten something precious about the gospel. This is, this is why we care about our own holiness and purity. This is why we care about the holiness and purity of the church. Because of what God has done in Christ. Because of the price that he paid to save us from sin. Because he deserves a pure and spotless bride. And so God saved us through the gospel. And God is sustaining us through the gospel. As servants of Christ, we proclaim Christ to those outside the church. And we proclaim Christ to those inside the church. So we come to the second verb Paul uses, warning everyone. Dear dear friend, part of your work as a Christian, part of your ministry is to warn. Of course, this means warning those outside the church that if they're trusting in something that is not God, they will not be saved. Warning them of an eternity separated from God. Of course, it includes that. But it sure seems to me that Paul is referring to a warning of believers as well. Those who claim to know Christ, whose lives don't reflect that knowledge. That's, that's our ministry too. And can I be honest with you? In every way, that's harder. Sin has a way of blinding us. I mean, say what you want about atheists, but they're honest. But how many people are in churches today who claim to know Christ, but whose lives are functionally atheistic? Sin has a way of blinding us so that we justify our sinful actions. And each of us, I mean that each of us, Pastor Brent and I, each of us depend on one another to warn us when we see us going into sin. And how do we do that? Well, that brings us to the third verb. We teach. Teaching everyone with all wisdom. This is your ministry, Cornerstone, to teach with wisdom. Teaching the word with gentleness, with grace, Some, some of us are, are know what we're doing is sinful and we do it anyway. Some of us are just ignorant. In both cases, teaching is needed. Good biblical teaching. For the Bible to be taught wisely and with patience. Sometimes you'll hear confessing Christians 
justify their sin because, well, God will forgive me. I'll just repent after. God will forgive me. And if you hear a Christian saying that, I think you should agree with them because that's biblical, that God will forgive all repentant sin. All sinners who repent will be forgiven. But I think that you should warn them. We know God will forgive. What we don't know is that you'll be repentant. You who are sitting here in this place looking for the sin that you so desperately want are willing to go around God to get it. Your heart is so hardened against the warnings of Scripture, so hardened against the preciousness of the cross that you're willing to go around Jesus in order to get the thing that you want that is sin. Right now, your heart is that hard. What assurance do you have after you have the sin that suddenly you'll feel bad and be repentant? You have no assurance of this. You do know that God will forgive the repentant heart, but you don't know that your heart will be repentant. And so they need to be warned and they need to be taught because it's possible. Lord, I pray it's never true of my life that God would lift his protecting hand and give my hard heart over to the thing that I want. This is a hard ministry. Personally, I have found it to be the hardest ministry. But this is what the Lord has called us to. Though you will endure this ministry with great sorrow, though you need to enter into this ministry with much prayer, though you will need to apply steady and gentle wisdom. God has many times and will many times more bring that sinner to himself, to herself, or she will repent and trust again. All this effort and work and toil, all this praying is a partnership with God's gospel preparing God's people for Jesus. That's the fourth verb we see. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We work to present everyone mature in Christ. We grow Christians through the ministry of the Word. We labor and struggle, enduring whatever afflictions, to proclaim Christ, to prepare His church, to meet Him. This is our joint ministry. Preparing God's church to delight in God's Son. This is what drives our vision of the good life. The pleasures of God. Now, as I said, this is the hardest ministry. And it will be fraught with disappointment. As you know, sanctification is a long, slow process. Often, Deeply frustrating. Tears will be shed over this ministry in your life if you give yourself to it. How are you going to do it? You guys are busy. It's the holidays. Don't you already have enough going on? Why would you worry about other people's dirty business? Your life is a big enough mess as it is. Why would you worry about someone else? Wouldn't it just be easier for you to focus on your problems and leave others to themselves? Well, it would be easier. 
but that would be antithetical to the Christian life. Would it have been easier for Jesus to have just left you and your problems? Yeah, of course it would have been. That's not what he did. Which brings us to the last point. And here's where we'll wrap up. Verse 29. God's servants work in God's power. For this I toil, struggling. Man, I feel those words. With all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Cornerstone, give your life to verse 28. Go all in on verse 28. But if you only do verse 28, without verse 29, it will wreck you. Even the great apostle Paul did not serve in his own strength. He says, my toil, my struggle was with God's energy and God's power. 1 Peter 4.11, let the one who serves, serve with the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. Each of us are called to Christian ministry, to suffer for the sake of others, to reveal Christ to outsiders, to grow the church, to proclaim the gospel and warn and teach. And the strength to do this, it, it can't come from within us. Trust me. Trust me as someone who's tried. It will leave you exhausted, sleepless, disappointed, a little jaded. And if you're not careful, worst of all, cynical. The slowness of Christian ministry, the setbacks, the loneliness. It means that we need to depend fully on the strength of the Lord. And so, dear friends, we must tether ourselves daily to God's word to spend unhurried time in prayer. And as you do, your vision of the good life will be more informed by biblical priorities. And you begin to let go of the 21st century American idea of the good life. And you slowly adopt the Lord's purpose for yourself. And as you give yourself to Bible reading and prayer, you'll learn not to trust yourself to build the church. You'll remember it's not you building it anyway. Jesus said, I will build my church. It's just the privilege that we all have that he gets to use us to do it. You'll find yourself resting in his timing, in his plan. And can I just take the veneer off of it? It's never going to look the way you think it's going to look. When you feel the Holy Spirit moving on your heart to sit down with your sister in the Lord and say, Sister, listen, it sure seems to me from this scripture, you're in sin. And I'm, I'm pleading with you as your sister. I'm praying for you. Will you please repent? You can run that conversation through your mind a dozen times when you sit down with that person. It will never go the way you expect. But it will go the way God wants it to. You just have to be faithful. You just have to be in love with that person and care enough about their spiritual well-being to tell them, I love you. Please stop. You're a servant, a steward. Set your sights on the good life, the one defined by God, and work hard with his strength and suffer well, trusting his plan to proclaim Christ.